This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. some things that we do in church that go completely unquestioned until they are. Questioned, that is. One such usually unquestioned part of worship is preaching. Now, you all know what preaching is. Preaching is basically a monologue where one person addresses the whole congregation at some length from a place of prominence. Now, this has certainly been a conspicuous part of Reformed worship ever since the Reformation. In fact, I think we can say it's been a conspicuous part of Christian worship ever since the dawn of Christianity. But this idea of preaching has come in for criticism in recent decades. I've been receiving a magazine for over 30 years. I just have never bothered to cancel my subscription Uh, that argues that instead of such preaching, we should all sit in a circle and discuss the meaning of God's word together. Preaching is viewed as part and parcel of a usurpation by clerics of authority over the church that does not belong to them. Preaching is viewed as as part and parcel of a clerical usurping of authority over God's people. But even where such views are not accepted... And a semblance of preaching remains in churches. Its character, the character of preaching, is often misunderstood. Sometimes preachers really seem embarrassed to be preachers. Even more frequently, they drastically fail to understand the essentials of what they are supposed to be doing in that high pulpit in which they stand. Often they seem to think that their job is to be comedians, entertainers, or moralizers, rather than preachers of God's word. One of the things I want to do this morning is to defend the notion of preaching as it has historically been understood in the Reformed tradition by showing you that the tradition of reform preaching got the Bible right. So follow now while I read Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. 
And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, the signs and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This is now our 12th exposition in the book of Acts, uh, that crucial book of the Bible. Part one of the book of Acts has for its theme Pentecost, that Theme runs all the way from 112, in my opinion, through the end of chapter 2. And I've outlined it, as you see there. We look at the, we've looked at the preparation for Pentecost. We've looked at the pouring out of Pentecost. We've looked one time, but we'll look again today at the proclamation of Pentecost. And then section 4, we'll look at the products of Pentecost. Now, today we return to section 3, the proclamation of Pentecost, Acts 2, 14 to 36. And the theme of Peter's sermon, message or proclamation, is really the explanation of Pentecost. That's what he's doing in his sermon. That's his thesis. How do we explain Pentecost? What is going on here with these tongues of fire, this mighty rushing wind, and the speaking in tongues which those living in Jerusalem had heard. And I've divided the sermon of Peter into four parts. 
It's circumstantial description, it's prophetic prediction, it's contextual clarification, and it's decisive implication. Last week we came to the first of these headings, and we come back to that same heading this week. We considered last week, by way of application and our first practical lesson from these verses, uh, the primacy of Peter among the apostolic band. This week we come to a second major lesson to be gleaned from this passage. In order, however, to lay the foundation for that lesson, let me review uh, the exposition of these verses, verses 14 and 15, which I've called a circumstantial description of Peter's preaching. Verses 14 and 15 read as follows. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. There are seven things I asked you to notice last week, and I'm asking you again to notice this week in these verses. And they lay the foundation not just for last week's lesson, but for this week's lesson. Remember, the voice identified. Luke first tells us that one voice, one person, took the lead in what is often properly called the first Christian sermon. It was the voice of Peter that spoke for the apostolic band and gave the apostolic explanation of Pentecost addressed to the whole multitude. The text says literally, Peter standing. The natural implication might seem to be that Peter was sitting down and then he stood up. That's probably not the case. What it probably means is that at some point around 9 o'clock in the morning, the uh, 12 apostles gathered together. They were standing together, and then Peter stepped forward from the 12 with them surrounding him. He stepped forward and began to preach. And then there is in these verses the verification stated Uh, The words that Peter was about to utter were not merely his own. We are told that the 11 other apostles were standing with Peter in obvious support of what he was asserting. Their standing with him was a visible verification that Peter spoke for them all. Peter spoke not because he possessed a special office in contrast to them, but he spoke as their representative and spokesman. They were all apostles of Christ, as much as Peter was. The authority with which Peter spoke was the authority of them all. They all stood because they were all the chosen witnesses of the Christ and his resurrection. This is the constant theme, by the way, of the preceding chapters. One, two, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then one, eight, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You, you twelve whom I have chosen, shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And then 126 reads, And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. But then we have in these two verses the volume affirmed. Luke 10 tells us that Peter did what you have to do when you're speaking in front of a bunch of people, a large crowd. He raised or lifted up his voice. But behind this lifting up of his voice was the determination to be heard. 
and to make known clearly to everyone some important news. Thus, in the volume with which Peter spoke is manifested the urgency with which he spoke. Then we have the verbalization asserted. When Peter raised his voice, he did not yell nonsensically as if he were at a college football game yesterday. He was not simply cheering loudly as as if he were uh, cheering on his child and yelling uh, cheerfully and joyously when he scored a goal in a soccer match. No, rather we are told that he loudly spoke certain words. The text says he declared to them, and this word declared is only used three times in the New Testament and only by Luke in the book of Acts. And it speaks of public utterance and never of private conversation. It speaks of verbally and propositionally addressing a gathering. And the implication also seems to be present where it is used that the words spoken were spoken with seriousness and authority. But then the viewers addressed are also mentioned. The viewers addressed. Peter addresses all those present. They had seen extraordinary signs. They had viewed the apostles speaking in tongues. Now he addresses the crowd with two respectful descriptions. He calls them first Jewish men, Jewish adult males, and then he calls them all those living in Jerusalem. The same basic phrase as you have there in Acts 2.5. So it is noteworthy that Peter addresses the whole assembly, regardless of whether they were sympathetic, irrespective of whether they were Christians, regardless of whether they showed any signs of being God's elect, he proclaims the gospel to them all. And later, when they're struck with a sense of their guilt, he will tell them all to repent and be baptized. So that we have here the indiscriminate, the sincere, and the well-meant call of the gospel. But then we saw the value underscored of what Peter was going to say. Peter urges them to give the most careful attention to what he's about to say by saying, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. The word give heed is important here. It's found in many places in the Old Testament, though only here in the New Testament, and is found in places where it speaks of the necessity, the importance, the value of what is about to be said. Peter is is saying that what he is talking about is very serious, very important, and needs to be heard. And finally, he speaks, so that we have in these verses, the vice denied. Peter begins his explanation of Pentecost by refuting the profane and foolish interpretation of the sign of tongues given by mockers in verse 13. They had expressed the opinion that the sign of tongues was due to the apostles being drunk. Peter denies this interpretation. The strange languages were not a result of people being drunk. And uh, as I told you last week, a great deal of discussion has taken place as to what the reason is that Peter gives for denying this, what argument he uses here. But I think it's just really common sense. Drunks are not normally walking around doing stuff at 8 in the morning. What drunks are doing at 8 in the morning is sleeping it off. And this, I think, is Peter's 
argument. So Peter answers their foolish uh, misrepresentation of what was going on by these words. Well, all that brought me last week to talk about the primacy of Peter. But uh, this week I have a second lesson that I want to raise out of these words in this exposition. And this lesson may be summarized this way. It can be summarized as the propriety of preaching, although I think I might want to say the primacy of preaching as I think about Pastor Joe's prayer. So I want you to consider with me this morning the propriety or primacy of preaching. In the preaching of Peter, we have at the outset of the Christian dispensation both a proof of the importance and an explanation of the character of Christian preaching, at least an example of the character of Christian preaching. Preaching clearly is central to Christianity. After the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the central and most prominent thing that happened was that Peter got up and preached. But what was the character of this preaching, which is so vital and central to the birth of the Christian church? What is the character of this preaching that is so necessary to the ongoing development of the Christian church to this day? I have ten things to say about that. (laughs) And uh, they're all very short, though. I think you'll be out of here on time. You don't need to worry about dinner burning in the oven or whatever it is or in the crock pot. Uh, The first thing I want you to learn about preaching from this passage is that preaching is royal. Preaching is royal. What I mean is that preaching, Christian preaching, comes with the authority, the imprimatur of the king of kings. The Bible's major words for preaching are all derived from the Greek verb, is your Greek lesson for today, the Greek verb keruso. A preacher is a kerux. And it is clear that he who preaches acts as a herald for the king. He speaks with the authority of the king for the king. Now, this is perfectly clear in the very first occurrence of this word in the Bible. The very first occurrence of this word in the Bible, at least in the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by the disciples of Christ, is found in Genesis 41, verses 41 to 43. Listen, Pharaoh said to Joseph, he just made him second in the kingdom. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed, literally, they preached before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. This is preaching. It is to run 
before the chariot of God and say, bow the knee. You see what that, what those heralds were doing, running before the chariot of Joseph? They were proclaiming royalty. They were proclaiming the one who was now second in the kingdom of Egypt, the mightiest kingdom as they no doubt thought in the world. And those heralds ran before that chariot saying, bow the knee. This was preaching. This is the first preaching in the Bible. It is to proclaim then. Before God's chariot, bow the knee. Preaching is not a dialogue. You see that? Let's discuss whether you ought to bow the knee before Joseph's chariot. Nonsense. Preaching is not a dialogue. Preaching is not leading a discussion. Preaching is a unilateral and one-sided proclamation of the decrees of the king to his people. The preacher speaks with the authority of the divine king and proclaims the message of the divine king. Preaching is royal. Now, this idea of preaching is also clear in the New Testament uses of K. Rousseau and its relatives. Perhaps the best example of this force is found in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, where the word is used. This text epitomizes the idea of preaching and says very plainly, Paul to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. See the idea of the solemnity and authority of preaching in this text. It is done in the presence of God, the presence of the God who has sent the preacher, and it is done with the authority of the God who has sent him. It is preaching understood in this way. This act of preaching, this duty to preach, which is at the heart of the Christian ministry. This idea of what is behind the preaching of, of Peter is clear. The idea behind the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost is that preaching is royal. You know, you ought to, you ought to, you ought to think, you ought to have thoughts like this in your mind. You know, you know, Pastor Ron, Pastor Joe, Pastor Sam, they're pretty nice guys. I mean, they seem to be friendly enough. But boy, when they get in the pulpit, there's something different. Yes. Because in the pulpit, we are not merely your shepherds or your friends. We are the heralds of God. And that is different. But preaching is not only royal... Preaching is verbal. Preaching is verbal. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. It's a very famous saying of St. Francis of Assisi, and it is also completely misleading. Preaching necessarily uses words. It is verbal. 
That is clear from the statement of verse 14 that Peter raised his voice and declared. It is clear from the words of Peter when he says, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. This is clear from the entire succeeding context and its description of what Peter said. Preaching necessarily involves words. It involves verbal communication. Of course, good preaching should be supported by holy living. But holy living is not by itself or in itself preaching. Preaching is verbal. At its heart is the communication of a royal decree in words to God's people. It is a verbal communication of the very words of God. Preaching is also, get ready for it, monological. (laughs) Preaching is monological. Now, monological sounds like a big word, but you know the word. It's from monologue. You know what a monologue is. It's when one person only or one person alone speaks. Mono one, log speak. You know that it's often used, and this is... (laughs) This is really unfortunate in some ways of what I'm saying this morning, but it's often used of what a comedian does in his entertaining. He delivers his monologue full of jokes and funny stories. That is not at all, of course, what a preacher should do. His goal is not to entertain or make people laugh. It is to deliver faithfully the message of the king. But there is one similarity between the comedian and the preacher. They're both doing a monologue. They speak and the audience listens. This is the idea of preaching and this is what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. A dialogue was just when two people talk back and forth, but preaching clearly is not a dialogue. It is a herald speaking for a king. Preaching is not a discussion. It is a proclamation, and this is what Peter did. He did not begin by saying that he had something to discuss with them. He acted on the premise that he had something to proclaim to them. Preaching is not a dialogue. It is a monologue. It is a proclamation. But then I want to say in the fourth place that preaching is central. Central. Having said that preaching is not a dialogue, or a question, an answer session, or a discussion, I must hasten to say something else. It is clear that in the whole process of the communication of the gospel, that there is a place for a dialogue. Preaching is central, but it's not the only thing. At the end of Peter's preaching, I think after he had finished his message, He is confronted with a great and serious question by those to whom he had just delivered the royal message from a king. Peter then engages in a dialogue with them, verse 37 to 41. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? 
Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So you see this dialogue here. After Peter is done preaching, when he gets to the climax, whom you crucified, they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter then enters into a dialogue with them. He exhorts them with many words. He tells them to repent. He tells them to get baptized. And, and they say, Let's, we'll do it. Let's get baptized. And 3,000 of them do. There's dialogue. There's interaction there. Preaching is central. But it's not the only thing. And so I'm not saying that dialogue is wrong. Quite the contrary. Preaching aims at creating a dialogue required by a distressed sinner saying, Brethren, what shall we do? There is a place, an important place to answer questions. There is a place to give specific advice to people. There is a place to sit down with someone and hear their story and point them to the way of righteousness. But here's what must not be missed. All of this dialogue is secondary to and dependent upon the communication that is central. and That is the communication of preaching. But then I want to tell you what the text also makes plain is that preaching is scriptural. Preaching is scriptural. It is clear from Peter's proclamation and preaching, that preaching necessarily and centrally involves the exposition of Scripture. And this is clear from several aspects of Peter's message here on the day of Pentecost. It's clear from the way in which he opens the message by a reference to Joel's prophecy and then explains it. It's clear from the way in which he comments at length then after that on Psalm 16 in his message. It's clear from the recitation of the apostolic witness about Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus the Nazarene, which will become Scripture, even though it was not inscripturated yet, verses 22 to 24 and verses 33 to 36. What Peter says was not yet inscripturated, that is, in Scripture, but it was tantamount the scripture and would become scripture. Preaching is scriptural. Now, of course, all this makes perfect sense if you don't forget what I said in the first place. Preaching is royal. It is the communication of a divine message. If preaching is a herald of the divine king, communicating his royal decree to his people, then, of course, the content of that preaching must be pervasively scriptural. It must be the word of the king. And so, you see, this is why we believe that true preaching must be expository. It must be a faithful and careful exposition of the words of God. If it is not that, it is not preaching. Now, it may be consecutive expository preaching. It may be topical expository preaching. But it must be the exposition of the word of God or it's not preaching. And clearly, if this is the truth, 
much of what is called preaching today simply is not, because it's not the faithful exposition of the Word of God. But then the text allows us to say that preaching is practical. What I mean is that preaching is not intended merely to inform people's minds. Now, it is intended to do that, of course. But preaching is intended to do more than inform people's minds. It is intended to lead them to do something. It is practical in that sense. And this becomes eminently clear in Peter's preaching. It is clear in his very practical denial of the wicked mockery. The first thing he had to do was get, get, get Pentecost straight. And so he had practically to, to expose for the folly it was the, the mocker's explanation of Pentecost. That was very practical. It is clear from the response that Peter's preaching actually had. The implications of Peter's message were only too clear. And when he was done, and after he pronounced that final word, whom you crucified, the practical response was exactly the response that Peter was trying to create. Men and brothers, what shall we do? We who have crucified our Messiah. That was practical. Yes, they had understood Peter's preaching, and it was exactly that question that he had wanted them to ask. It's also clear from the way Peter's dialogue with them after his preaching was concluded. Verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. This was, this was something he was trying to get them to do. He was trying to get them to be saved from this perverse generation. There was something practical they had to do as a result of the preaching. And it's finally clear from the practical response to Peter's preaching. They repented, were baptized, joined the church, and continue with the church and its worship. This, once I raised that question, Peter didn't say, well, I just want you to think about what I'm saying. You may, you may come up with something someday. No, he said, as a result of their question, which his preaching was calculated to create, he said to them, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, this preaching was practical. It was intended to make those people that day on Pentecost, do something. You know? That's what we are intending to do up here as well. Did you realize that? That's what Pastor Joan, Pastor Ron, anybody else who preaches in this pulpit should be doing. It's intended to get you to do something. The question in your mind if you hear preaching should be practical. It's not merely what can I learn from the preaching It's rather, what must I do because of this preaching? But this leads me directly to my next point. Preaching is consequential. That is to say, preaching has to do with very serious consequences, very serious matters. 
This is conveyed by Peter at the outset of his message when he lifts up his voice and when he urges his hearers to give heed to what he is saying. It's also made plain when in the dialogue at the end of the message, he says plainly to his hearers that they must save themselves from the perverse generation in which they lived, which was certain to die under the wrath of God when Roman armies surrounded and destroyed Jerusalem. Preaching always has to do with your salvation. Your response to preaching will save you or it will damn you. And so, dear friend, the urgent question is, how do you hear preaching? Do you realize how serious the consequences are of your response to the preaching of the word of God? Preaching is consequential, and that means that we must determine that we will rightly hear the preaching of God's word. And that means a number of very practical things. We will train our children not to be a distraction in worship. Our children need to know that there's something more important going on during the preacher, during the preaching, than their selfish desires. It's important for our children to learn that something's going on here that is even more important than they are. We will strive to minimize anything that may distract us. Now, <clears throat> what I'm about to say, I say, uh, being the, the, the uh, humble possessor of a 65-year-old body that does not always act in the way I'd like it to act, all right? So you will, you will, you will, you will qualify what I'm about to say in the instructions I'm about to give with, with the fact that, that we all have emergencies, right? We, all, we are not perfect, and we're not going to look uh, at each other with critical glances, but we'll strive to minimize anything that may distract us. We will use the restroom before the preaching. We'll make our children sure our children have all such needs attended to before the preaching of God's word. We will not needlessly walk in and out during the preaching of God's word. We will do all we can to cut down on such distractions during the preaching of God's word. We will turn off our phones unless there's some emergency to which we fear we may have to attend. And if we have to leave during the worship for some emergency, we will not linger and waste time talking in the hallways. Something important is going on here. God's word is being preached. We'll do our necessary business, and we will get back to the worship of God. We will focus our hearts and minds on what God is saying to us in the preaching. We will lock in our attention on the preaching of God's word. You ever see those basketball players? Crunch time has come. It's the last couple minutes of the game. They need to stop, right? They need to stop. And those guards get down and slap the floor, and they lock in. For defense. That's what they do. You've seen that? They lock in. This is how you should hear the preaching of God's word. Lock in. Lock in. Who do you think you are, Pastor Zam? No one. Just a herald. 
of the King of Kings. We will come with properly rested hearts and minds to the worship of God by getting to bed early enough on Saturday evening. The right hearing of the preaching of God's word begins with getting to bed at a proper time the night before. Why should you not stay up and watch that movie till 1230? Because tomorrow you have to hear the herald of the king. We'll remind ourselves and our families of what preaching really is. It is God speaking to us through his appointed messenger. And we'll set them an example of how to hear the word of God by rightly hearing it ourselves. Well, but preaching is not just consequential and all the other things I've said. It is Christological. It is Christological. Another attribute of the true preaching of God's word is that it has a specific message. It always has the same message. And that message is Christological. And by that big word, I simply mean that it's Christ-centered. It is indisputable, indisputable that Peter's first message after the Spirit was poured out and the gospel age dawned focused on the life, words, deeds, and saving power of Jesus Christ and how what had happened that day was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that all centered in him. His preaching in this passage is Christ-centered. Now, of course, this important fact should not be distorted should not be misapplied. It does not mean that we can never preach anything but the doctrines of grace. Some people think that's what it means, but that's not what it means. It does not mean that we can never preach anything but justification by faith alone. It does not mean that we can only preach the priestly work of Christ. Christ has three offices, not just one. Christ is our sanctifier, not just our justifier. Christ orders his church by his law and ordinances. There is more in the Bible than the doctrines of grace. And we may preach, therefore, <laughs> example, uh, we may preach, for example, sermons about the primacy of Peter and the propriety of preaching. But those sermons about the primacy of Peter and the propriety of preaching must be Christ-centered. The primacy of Peter among the plurality of apostles must lead us back to the great singularity of Christ as the center of both the universal and local church. The propriety of preaching requires that we finally say that true preaching is centered and focused on Christ himself. What a condemnation that is of the Christless preaching that goes on all over the world in the name of Christianity today. What a condemnation this is of the preaching that goes no farther than telling you how to be healthy, wealthy, wise, and moral by the standards of the world. What a condemnation this is of preaching that does nothing more than moralize on the basis of a scriptural pretext. Preaching must lead us back to Christ. As all roads led to Rome in the Roman Empire, so all preaching in the church of Jesus Christ must lead back to Christ. <clears throat> but I have two more things to say. I think it's two. 
first is this. Preaching is universal. We saw that in the exposition, didn't we? It is universal. It's not addressed only to God's elect. It's not addressed only to Christians. It is not addressed only to those who show signs of being converted. True preaching is to be addressed universally to all men. We saw that when he stepped forward, Peter addressed the men of Judea and all who are living in Jerusalem. Preaching is universal. All were to be addressed with the message. All were to be sincerely, freely, and with a well-meant call told to save themselves from that perverse generation. And finally, tenthly, preaching is effectual. Preaching is effectual. We're surrounded by so many people who think they're experts in religion. And those people will tell you that preaching doesn't work. Small groups work. Contemporary music works. Dialogue works. But preaching... Standing up and simply declaring God's message faithfully to his word in a long monologue to people, they will smile at you sympathetically and hope that urgently that the old-fashioned breed that you represent soon die off. But here's the thing. Preaching did work. It did work. It worked on the day of Pentecost. It worked on the day of Pentecost. Of course it was, it is, only a means. But it is a divinely appointed means of grace. God has always wanted, and he wanted in the first century, and he wanted in the Old Testament, and he wants today, men who will stand up and be heralds for the king. Many men who will stand up and in a monologue that represents the authority of the king of kings tell people what God's word says out of love for their souls. So it's only a means, but it's a divinely appointed means of grace. And when Peter was done preaching on the day of Pentecost, verse 41 tells us that there were 3,000 more Christians than there were before. Let us trust God's methods and close our ears to those who say that God's appointed means of preaching will not work. God's still calling men to preach, still calling Christians in the world to listen to them. Let us trust God's methods. And let us us believe the propriety and, yes, the primacy of preaching in God's church. Three final thoughts. The first is this. It is a glorious calling. It is a glorious calling to be called to preach God's word. (laughs) Not because you're anything more than a servant, that's all you are. You don't get to make up the message. You don't get to decide what you want to say. You only get to say this. You get to run before the chariot of Joseph and say, Bow the knee. <laughs> That's what you get to do. But it's still a glorious calling. 
It's a glorious calling to run between, before God's chariot and as a herald of the King of Kings say, bow the knee. That's a glorious calling. And if some of you are sensing such a calling, you must not turn a deaf ear to it. If the Spirit is calling you to be a servant and preacher of the Word of God, you must, you must heed that call. You must not run from the sacrifice. You must not run from the hardship. You must not run from the suffering to which that call summons you. You must heed that call because at the end of the day, there is nothing more glorious than to run before God's chariot and tell people to bow the knee. Second thing I have to say by way of a final thought is this. It is a serious calling to undertake to preach God's word. It is a serious calling to undertake to preach God's word. At the end of the day, what you're doing when you're preaching is this. You're telling people, this is what God says. Are you ready to do that? To tell people, this is what God says. That's a serious thing. There are preparations to be made both in your life and in your mind. There are standards of godliness. There are standards of gift. Both are set by the word of God. And you must not lightly skip over those standards or those preparations in your eagerness to preach. Neither should the church lightly skip over those standards. The church should exercise great care in who is allowed to preach God's word as the formal representatives of God and especially who is allowed to do that in the house of God itself. It's a serious calling to undertake to preach God's word. And it is a solemn thing to refuse the preaching of God's word. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? It wasn't Pastor Joe who told you to repent. It was God. Don't you understand? It wasn't Pastor Ron who told you to get baptized when you repented. It was God. It wasn't wasn't Pastor San who told you that that sin was wrong and you had to stop it. It wasn't Pastor Sam. It was God. Do you have that straightened out in your mind yet? Do you hear God's word? Do you hear the preaching of God's word as you should? It was not Pastor Ron, Pastor Joe, or Pastor Sam that you refused when you rejected Christ and refused to obey the word preached to you. It was the King of Kings. Who turned the king of kings down. We're only the heralds of that great king. And when you sit there unmoved and disobedient to the preaching, you are not rejecting that king's humble heralds. You are rejecting that king himself. (laughs) How long do you think you can keep doing that? 
without terrible consequences. How long can you keep coming and hearing God tell you, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, repent and believe the gospel? And you go whistling Dixie on your way, thinking that was just Pastor Sam. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was not. It was God himself, the King of Kings, who told you to do that. And you are turning your back on him. So how long do you think you can keep doing that without terrible consequences? How long-suffering, gracious, and patient God has already been with you? How long could these people on the day of Pentecost, how long could that nation, hearing Peter tell them, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, how long could they keep rejecting that message? How long could they keep doing that? We know exactly how long they could do that before the wrath of God came upon them to the uttermost. Forty years later, it fell. And if you do not heed the preaching of God's word and his clear commands to you, I say it with no joy, it will fall on you as well. Because what we say this morning is not our word. It is the word of the king of kings. May God help you. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you. We thank you for the patience with which you come to us Lord's Day after Lord's Day. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins as your people, falling short of your glory every week, every day, because of the impurity of our motives every second. And yet, through Christ you receive us, and through Christ you bring to us messengers of the King to call us once more to repent and to save ourselves from this perverse generation. Oh, grant us grace to do that. Forgive us, cleanse us, draw near to us. And grant your word to be our faith, our confidence. We pray for some here who need to repent and to take upon themselves the covenant sign of baptism. They need to do that. Help them not to refuse you again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.